Hi, this is Pastor Curtis. I want to thank you for checking out the Family Church Podcast. I hope it encourages you and inspires you to take your next step of faith. You can find out more about how to do that at our website, familychurch.xyz. And if you know a friend who needs to hear this message, please forward it on to them. I hope you enjoy the message. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say I thank, thank you guys for letting me be here. I appreciate Kyle for giving me that introduction. You know, it's uh, such a beautiful thing to look back at uh, all the people that have fed into my life, all the people that have given me something, all the people that were there for me uh, when they didn't have to be, when they didn't know me. It, it really is a, a powerful thing for somebody to come into a prison on strictly a volunteer basis. They're not getting a paycheck for it. They're not getting anything for it. They're just there because they truly believe that... Uh, the people inside of there are worth a little bit of their time and that they feel like they can give them something that can benefit their lives. And, it, and they, they can and they do. I, I can't tell you. I've met people from uh, people like Kyle who are teachers and, and grew up in the church and, and fathers a pastor to come in there and share God's word to uh, these uh, little old ladies who have been serving in prison for 50 years and they keep coming back year after year after year. Uh, because they believe that the men and the women inside of those places deserve to know that somebody loves them and cares about them. And that's the love of Jesus Christ right there. Like That's, that's exactly what uh, Jesus does for us, is for us, and wants us to do for each other. And so I'm very thankful for that. Uh, it's made a big impact in my life, and Kyle's made a big impact in my life. Uh, I look forward to them days that I knew he was coming, and we got to sit in a room and just basically talk about God and Jesus and how awesome and great he is. And uh, you talk about our families and our lives, so it's such a beautiful thing. Uh, let's say a quick prayer before uh, I get started sharing my story. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to be here uh, representing uh, you and, and, and your love and, and, and your ministry and, and who you are to me and what you have been for me. I just uh, thank you for all the, the great things that you did for me and all of us, uh, all the sacrifices that, that you made and and all the things that you went through in order for us to be uh, redeemed and to be able to commune with you and to fellowship with you and, and to, to be called your children. Uh, just have your way here, Father God. Uh, uh, just uh, use, use me to, to tell the story of, of what you've done in my life. I thank you and I love you and I praise you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, my story isn't exactly uh, the one that Kyle said, but there's a lot of similarities to it. Uh, I grew up in Kansas City, Kansas, uh, Wyandotte County, uh, on 10th Street. Uh, initially, my family was a pretty typical family. It was myself, a younger sister, two older sisters, my mom and my dad. Uh, we barbecued on the weekends. I uh, went to visit my family in Texas uh, every summer. I thought that my family was, was okay, that everything was, was good. And it was because I was young. And I didn't have like a, the spirit of discernment. I didn't understand what I was seeing. I didn't, I didn't have any experiences or any comparisons to, to draw from. And I, I didn't have a true picture of what my family was. See, my family, uh, my immediate family and my extended family had a lot of things going on with it. There was a lot of uh, drug and alcohol abuse. Uh, there was a lot of uh, physical and, and sexual abuse. Uh, there was a lot of lack, lack of communication and expression. And there was a, a lot of dysfunction. Uh, there was just a lot happening in my family that I wasn't aware of until I got older. It wasn't until I got a little bit older that I started to realize that my mom and my dad didn't get along very much. They didn't, they didn't really like each other. Uh, they had two differing opinions on how to raise children. 
I realized my dad had a, a, a anger issue that stemmed from PTSD. He's a Vietnam veteran. Uh, he, he had an alcohol problem. My mother did too. I realized that my family, my cousins, my aunts, and my uncles, they had all been through a lot and lived hard lives. And a lot of that trauma and a lot of that baggage uh, was being passed down generationally like those things do. You know, we always, we take on a lot of the things that our, our, fam, our families have, you know, that, that passed along to us if we don't find a way to break free of, of those chains and break free of those uh, generational curses and, and, and cycles. So when I was about 10 years old, two things happened that would change my life dramatically. One, uh, my gangs were introduced into my neighborhood pretty heavy. So they, they got implanted in the communities. They started to really like spread out and grow and become a big influence in my neighborhood. And at about that same time, my father left my mother for another woman and uh, started helping her to raise her two sons. And when that happened, it, it had a really uh, devastating effect on me. Because even though my family was messed up and there was a lot of things going on in my family that I knew weren't right by that time, I still had my father in my life who was kind of, he was the only really male role model I had. I mean, I had three sisters, my mom, my aunts, my grandma, and a bunch of girl cousins. It was really just my dad who was there. So when he left, that hurt me a lot. I felt sad. I felt kind of uh, mad at him. I felt like I was getting uh, cheated because he, he was over here with this woman uh, and her two sons who weren't even his sons, and I'm over here without him. And so it made me just super resentful of the whole situation. Uh, my mom and my dad had been married for like 24, 25 years at that point. So him leaving really devastated her. I don't think that she ever thought that was going to be the reality of her life, a divorced woman raising her children on her own. She started to drink even more heavily. Uh, that was like the first time I ever saw my mom to the point where she was like passed out on the couch and she uh, wrecked her car a few times. She was just extremely depressed. My oldest sister had gotten pregnant, gotten married, and moved out. My second oldest sister's boyfriend had moved in with us. Uh, they were drinking and smoking a lot of weed and selling drugs. My little sister was extremely angry, extremely defiant, getting into a lot of trouble at school. And so I just left. At that point, people tried to talk to me. I mean, I remember my cousins, my, my uh, aunts and uncles, like some of my teachers and stuff trying to ask me, you know, are you okay? Like that your dad's gone. Do you need to talk to him? Do you want to see him? Do you need to talk to somebody? But my family wasn't really big at, at communication. They didn't express those types of feelings. So I just shrugged it off. You know, I'm cool. I'm all right. I just want to go play with my friends. And so I left and I stayed gone like as much as I could. And out there in my neighborhood, I ran into gang members. And these are people that I thought had all the things that I didn't have. I was very insecure as a child. I was very uh, unsure of who I was or what I should be doing. Uh, I just didn't feel like I had any power or any control in my life or my environment. All these bad things were happening to me and, and my family, and I couldn't do anything about it. And they seemed to have all those things. They seemed to have confidence. They seemed to have control and power. They were able to, to make decisions and make things happen. Like people respected them in the neighborhood. So I gravitated towards that immediately. And with gangs, you can imagine what comes next. A lot of drinking, a lot of uh, drugs, a lot of uh, petty crimes. I was getting in fights. I was breaking in cars. I was, you know, stealing stuff, doing things like that. But as I got older, that criminal lifestyle and the things that we were doing progressively got 
more serious. So before I knew it, I was carrying a pistol everywhere I went. I was shooting at people. They were shooting at us. Some of my friends uh, got murdered. Uh, some of our enemies uh, got murdered. It was just this crazy, you know, escalation and violence. And when I was 16 years old, a week before my 17th birthday, actually, um, me and two of my friends committed three drive-by shootings. And in the process of the last one, an innocent woman was shot and killed. And I remember getting arrested, sitting in the police station, and th not knowing what happened, like not really knowing what happened. All I knew is that we had shot at, at a house or at, like something that we had done before and that I was going to go to jail and I was going to be there for a while and I was going to get back out and there was really no real consequence that my, you know, 16-year-old mind could understand. But that wasn't the case. And I remember as I was sitting there, there was an officer in there. Like the rest of the officers were treating me kind of rough. Like understandably, I had just done this horrible thing. They knew exactly what had happened. And they were, uh, you know, treating me a certain type of way. And I just remember sitting there and this officer came over and he looked at me and he said, you know, I believe now like out of compassion and concern for another human being, do you know what happened? And I told him, no, I don't know what happened. He goes, somebody was killed. And when he said that, I understood that this wasn't going to be exactly like the rest of the times that I had been in jail, that this was something different. And I believe that that officer, man, like he had compassion and love for me at a time when he had no reason to be. He, I was the bad guy. He was the good guy. I was the person out here terrorizing the community, and he was the person out here trying to protect the community and serve the community. But yet in that moment, he looked at me as a young kid who needed some compassion because he put his hand on my shoulder and looked me in my eye. And I remember he said, hey, just hang in there. And years back, I would reflect on that and think, what is that that makes one human being respond to another human being in that situation with love and compassion? And I know now that that's the love of Jesus Christ. I don't know that officer. I don't know his name. I don't know where he is or whatever happened to him. But I know now that he gave me an example at that moment of what that looks like. When somebody's at their lowest, at their worst moment, when they've done something so terrible and so horrible that most of the world can't even comprehend and understand it, he responded with compassion. And that's what Jesus does for us. Eventually, I was convicted of first-degree felony murder, criminal possession of a firearm, and criminal discharge of a firearm. I was sentenced to 15 years to life plus six years in the Kansas uh, penitentiary. I was about 18 when I got to Lansing Correctional Facility, the same facility that uh, Kyle serves at. And I remember walking in and uh, yeah, it's a scary thing. It's an intimidating thing. I'm walking down this walkway. There's fences on both sides. I'm wearing a blue jumpsuit. Everybody knows I'm brand new. And while I was in the county jail, I had accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. There's some ministry work that goes on in counties. And these guys had came in and they had prayed with us and, and read the word to us and, and talked to us and encouraged us and told us about Jesus. And that was something in me that was moved. Like I felt that message. You can't hear uh, the word of God, especially when you're open and you're looking for something and it pierces your heart, like Kyle said. And that's what it did for me. And I accepted him and I felt different. I started reading his word. I started praying. I started, you know, feeling better about my life. Even though I was going through all these uh, 
these bad things, these hard things, I felt a, a, a level of peace. But when I got to the penitentiary, it seemed like that was a million miles away because I knew I was coming here and I wasn't leaving. And I knew there was people here who might not like me. I knew there was people here who might want to kill me for what I did. And I was scared. But I didn't ask for help. Instead, I did what I always did. I just kept my mouth shut and tried to act tough and move forward. Well, I remember the first day there, I walk into the chow hall to get my lunch, and some guy walks up to me, and he says, hey, man, do you know where the Mexicans sit? And I said, no. He said, they sit at those five tables over there, man. Go have a seat, and somebody will talk to you. So I did. One of the guys that sat at the table with me told me, hey, man, uh, here we all look out for each other. You can hang out with us. Uh, you, you'll be cool, man. You know, uh, we, we, can, uh, we learn to survive in here, but there's going to be some things that you have to do. Now, you don't have to do that. You can go out on your own. You can, you can take your chances. And I, I look back now, and I wish that I would have had the courage and the wisdom and that my faith was strong enough that I would have known then what I know now, which is, at the end of the day, you don't need anybody but Jesus Christ. If you got Jesus Christ, you don't need anybody else, even the people that you lean on the most. Because we've all probably experienced it. Those people can go. Like, things can happen. Life happens. Something happens to separate you from, from that support system. And I know now that I could have said, I'm not going to take my chances on my own. I'm going to take my chances with Jesus Christ. But I was an 18-year-old kid who didn't have that wisdom and that faith at that point. My strength wasn't to that point, that, the point that it is now. So I, I told him, no, I want to be with you guys. I felt like in my mind that was the only thing, the only way that I was going to be able to survive this situation. It wasn't five days later, man, that they uh, asked me to assault somebody in prison, which I did. They gave me love. They gave me congratulations. They made me feel like I did something great. I felt like I was walking with my head high, like I had respect in that place. That was the cycle of my life for that point forward. I'd commit these acts of violence. I got deeper and deeper in prison gang activity. Eventually, I went to a segregation, uh, was down there for two years, got out right back to gang life, right back to, to violent acts, right back to segregation for two and a half years, got out. Nine years after being released from, I mean, nine months after being released from segregation the second time, it was 2009, uh, I was in the hole. I was in Hutchinson Correctional Facility. I'd just been involved in this big incident. It was like 20-something people either went to the infirmary or went to the hole. And I'm doing my thing. I'm in the cell, you know, doing push-ups, doing whatever I do to pass time. One of my friends... He's on the other side of the building, so he's still got access to phone, the phone and stuff like that. And he hollers at me through this little, there's a little hole, a little vent in the back of your cell that we talk to each other through. And he gets down there and he says, hey, Titere, that's what he used to call me. Uh, I'm about to make a phone call. Would you like for me to call your family and see how everything is and pass a message or something? And I told him, yeah, man, call my sister and my mom and just tell them I said hi, tell them I said I love them. I don't know when I'm getting out of the hole, but when I do, I'll let them know. And he said, cool, cool, I'll get back with you. I went about my business and uh, probably about an hour later or so, he, I hear him calling me again. I get down there, see what's going on. And he says, hey, I got some uh, news for you, but I don't want to put your business out there. So I'm going to send you a, a, a wheelie, a kite, a little note you wrap up and wrap in plastic and pass to people. So he does, he sends it to me. I, I, I unwrap it, I open it, I read it. And it says, hey man, I talked to your sister. She told me that your mom's been diagnosed with stage four cancer 
and you need to call home as, as soon as you can. And I remember that brought me to my knees, not because I, I, like I, I was trying to do that, but that news just hit me so hard that I couldn't stand up. So last time I talked about my mom, she was passed out drunk on the couch. She had wrecked her car. She was in deep depression. She was trying to put the pieces of her life back together. But when I got arrested, she would tell me the story later. She said, uh, I remember sitting in your sister's house. I was living with your sister in her apartment, and I'm on the couch, and I was praying, and I told God, will you help my son? Because I can't help him. And she said, I heard God tell me I am going to help him, but I'm going to help you too. My mom said she went and got all her beer, poured it in the sink, grabbed her cigarettes, threw them in the trash, went out in that hallway and sat on the stairs of that apartment building and just cried and prayed for who knows how long. My mom never drank again. She never smoked another cigarette. She started going to church every week, started serving in the, in the, the, the child care. She wrote me a letter at least once a week, answered the phone every time I called. If I wasn't in the hole, she came to see me. She always told me I was better than what I did. She always told me that I was more than what I thought I was. She always loved me. Never, never judged me or turned her back on me. And I didn't know it at the time, but she was showing me the love of Jesus Christ yet again. I just thought my mom was the best mom ever. And I still think that my mom was the best mom ever. But I didn't know that it was Jesus Christ who made her that person. She would tell me about him, you know, just trust Jesus, lean on Jesus, never let go of his hand. I remember she used to say that, never let go of his hand. So when I heard this news, this strong woman who had become the pillar of our family had stage four cancer, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, naive or dumb enough to not know that that was serious. And I remember I got the uh, facility to let me make a five-minute phone call. They made an exception because my mom was sick. I called her. And I tried to be brave and strong for her because I knew she was going to be worried about me. And she said, I'm fine, son. Like, the doctors are saying this, but I feel okay. Everything's cool. I'm going to go to treatment. And I said, okay, mom, I'll call you when I get a chance. Next thing I know, I was packing up my stuff. I was going back to long-term segregation because just because your mom's sick doesn't mean you don't have to pay for the consequences of your actions. So I was going back to long-term segregation. I would end up being there for three and a half years this time. And during that process, uh, I was able to talk to my mom every day because there's a phone in the cells in long-term segregation because you never leave. So I would call her, and I would talk to her. And I, and I remember as time went on, like weeks passed of doing this, I thought, what can I do to make my mom happy? Well, I know she read the Daily Bread, so I thought maybe I can read the Daily Bread to her. So I started reading her the Daily Bread every day. I started reading her the little scripture every day. We started talking about that. And you guys know as well as me, at least probably most of you guys do, that if you start getting in that word, it doesn't matter what the reason is. It doesn't matter what you think is going to happen. What's going to happen is that word starts to get planted in your heart. It starts to change you. The minute we start putting other people above ourselves, which is what I did for the first time in my life, I put somebody in front of me and what I was feeling, what I was wanting, what I was thinking, God started to change me. And he started to change my relationship with my mom. We grew closer than ever. We started to get to know each other in these weird, weird special ways. Like, so we would watch America's Funniest Videos together and just laugh. Like I, I had a, a television. And I'd put it on the channel. She'd put it on the channel. Things that we'd never done before. But as me and my mom grew closer and closer, my mom grew more and more sick. 
eventually the day came when I called her, and uh, she was like too sick to really talk. She talked a little bit. I just read to her. And then the day came where I called her, and she couldn't talk at all. My sister's like, she just don't have the strength anymore. That was one of the saddest days of my life because I had grown to cherish those phone calls to hear her voice. And just like that, gone. And I remember thinking, am I ever going to hear my mom talk again? Before that day, I had asked my mom all these questions, man, trying to get to know her, trying to grab anything of her I could because I knew the situation was. And I remember in one conversation, I asked her, Mom, what, what are your dreams? Like, what are your hopes? She said, I don't have any. I just want my kids and my grandkids to be happy, and that's it. And I said, uh, yeah, but if you could have one thing like a wish, what would it be? She said, well, if I could have a wish, it would be for my only son to come home one day. <sighs> Let me tell you, like, at the time, that didn't sound like a sweet thing to me. It hurt me. Like, it hit me. But here's my mom. She has three daughters, raising families, grandchildren. She's dying of cancer, and she's wasting her one wish, her one dream on me. Wasting it. I was a gang member. I was a drug addict. They wouldn't even let me around other prisoners. Like, that's who I was. I think it was one of the worst people you could, you could meet. That was me. And here was this lady saying the one thing she would want is for that person to come home. That was very impactful. I could never shake it. And that day that I called her and she couldn't speak, I remembered that conversation. And I told my mom, Mom, I'm, I'm going to guarantee you, I'm, I promise you, I'm going to give 100% to try to come home. It probably wasn't a week and a half later my mom passed away. Thanksgiving morning, 2010. My mom passed away. But I kept my promise. Every morning I'd wake up, I'd read my daily bread, I'd read my word, I'd read one of her letters to remind me of what I was living for. And I worked. I got involved in every program I could. I got out of the hole. I started going to church every week. I started serving in the church when I could. I got into college. I took anger management, I took uh, emotional trauma and healing, I took uh, relationship classes, anything I could think of, and I kept praying. 2015, five years after my mom passed away, I made parole off that life sentence. And it was such a, it was such a big day for us, my family, because I felt like for the first time, I had done something for my mom to make her proud, something that she deserved. But the thing is, like, the, the person that we become when we start to chase goals like that, when we start to live our life like that, totally trumps whatever that goal is. You know, my goal was to get out of prison. But by the time I would get out of prison, which wasn't for another five years because I had six more years to do on the back of that life, by the time I got out of prison, to be honest with you, I didn't even feel like I had to leave. Like, that's the, the work that God had done in my life. I had felt like I had a full life. I was serving in there. I was living in there. I was a man that my family was proud of. I was a man that, 
that knew that true change was possible. I was helping other men to encourage that in them and to help them grow that. I was connecting with people like Kyle and all these other people that they go in there every day and, and put in this work. So by the time I left, it wasn't like I was such a different person. God had given me so much peace and contentment that it wasn't as big of a deal, the goal. But I did get out. I got out on March 2nd, 2020. And I got to visit my mom's grave. Uh, that was the first time I'd ever seen it because I didn't want any pictures. If I got to see it, it was because I kept my promise. And I did. Shortly after that, uh, this beautiful woman, <laughs> Anna, who I'm here with, uh, came home and we moved in together. And shortly after that, she got pregnant. Shortly after that, July of last year, uh, God blessed us with twin baby boys, which is a blessing all its own because years and years and years before Anna knew me, she had started praying for her husband and her family, that God would be shaping him and growing him. And she, uh, I think we got some pictures somewhere. Okay, there they are. There they are, uh, the babies. There we are, <laughs> the family. And Anna had promised God that her first son was going to be dedicated to him. She was going to name him Jedediah, beloved of God, God's special name for Solomon. And when I found out she was pregnant, I thought, great, I'm going to get a little junior. <laughs> and so she was trying to figure out, how do I break the news to Daniel? <laughs> He's not going to be Daniel Jr. His name's going to be Jedediah. And that's a promise that I made to God. And so... Uh, God gave us two boys, so that's Jedediah on the left, and that's Daniel Jr. Uh, on the right. God works miracles. And you think about uh, what he can do. I got out. I got a job. I was, I was restoring wood floors, and then I got a job where I was running CNC machines in a metal fabrication plant. I'm taking care of my family, and we're doing all these things, you know, the grown-ups do. Even though I'm almost 40 years old, I'm learning how to do them all for the first time. And then God opened this door for me uh, that I'm, I'm, for the job and the work that I'm doing right now. So he, uh, through another volunteer with another man who uh, had done over 20 years in the penitentiary and became a volunteer and became the president of a group that I'm involved with called Reaching Out From Within. I met him while I was inside. He became a good friend of mine. And he said, hey, man, we're starting this new program in the Missouri Department of Corrections based on restorative practices for guys that are on probation and parole. It's an old minimum that we're renovating and turning into a transition center. And I think that you'd be the perfect guy to help me run it. And so I was like, cool, man. Like, uh, let's see if we can make it happen. I don't know if we can. I got a family now. So financially, I'm a little scared about taking a step back because, you know, that's a big thing, you know, once you become a father and a husband. And he's like, well, we'll try to figure out how to make it work. And so we got it to where, you know, I, I, I felt, man, I'm, I'm going to take this job and I'm going to trust God and we're going to do what I think he has in my life for me to do. And so now I work uh, in a building run by the Missouri Department of Corrections. I got a little ID that says my name. I check out a set of keys every day and I open up doors and, and do all these things. And I got a radio and I got an office and I'm responsible for helping men have conversations to restore conflicts that happen in the facilities. And I introduce them to resources in the community, uh, like Kyle and like uh, the Goodwill and like the Journey to New Life and uh, Connections to Success and 
all these other people that are out here serving and making people's lives better. God's opened this door for me while I'm still on parole to go into this building every day. And these people have enough trust in me that they allow me to, to do that. The same guy who wasn't even to be allowed to be around other prisoners at one point in his life, they kept locked in this room 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week, never allowed to leave it because they couldn't trust what he was going to do out there, now has keys to the facility. But that's God's work. God does take the broken and make them beautiful. God does take ashes and replace it with beauty. God does forgive and restore people in a real way. Not, he doesn't cover you up. He doesn't put a bandaid on you. He transforms you from the inside out, which is what he did for me because I had to fight and work for everything, man. I had to disavow my membership to, to the gang I was in. I had to struggle and claw with the system, and I had to do all these things to get to where I'm at. And God was with me every step of the way, but I had to put in a lot of work. But the one thing that God did for me immediately, once I made that promise to my mom, God took all that hate out of my heart. I walked out to the yard the next day, and I'm in these dog runs, and I'm looking at all these dudes who the day before I felt like I, would, I could hurt without thinking twice, and that I knew would hurt me without thinking twice. And the day, that day I walked out there, I didn't hate those people anymore. I didn't want to do nothing bad to those people anymore. I, and, I, and I thank God that he gave me that miracle because if he wouldn't have took that hate out of my heart, there were so many opportunities when it would have came out and derailed his plan. Like he knew what I needed and he knew what I needed to learn the hard way. So he gave me the thing that I needed now. I'm going to take that hate from you so that you can push forward on this path. The rest you're going to have to work and learn and, and grow the long road. And, and that... And he did, man. Today, man, I'm a, I'm a peaceful man. I'm a man who doesn't even believe in violence. Like, I, I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I don't do any of those things. I go to church every week. I, I still read my word. I listen to a sermon every day on the way to work so that I'm getting in the right mind. Like, the men that I look up to and that I call my friends now are men like Kyle, uh, men like Pastor Will at my, at my church, who's also an ex-felon, who's now the pastor of a church that's 70% probably formerly incarcerated men and women who have found a way to become a church family together, and they're, they're singing the worship songs and playing the, the instruments, and they're leading the service and greeting the people at the door. And it's like we found a way to turn our community out there to a community out here. And it's such a beautiful thing that God does when you get a chance to come up here and tell your story about what he's done for you, and you get to meet all these new brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's so beautiful that no matter where we go, whether we went to Anna's hometown in Iowa a couple weeks ago, and we met brothers and sisters in Christ there. And it's a beautiful story of, of an encounter that we had with uh, some ladies who were doing his work right there, just selling little bracelets. And uh, it was, it, it's just so amazing to me how great God is and how big God is and how much he has for us if we trust him and, and rely on him. And so I just thank you guys for allowing me to share a little bit about what he's done for me and for my family and that... That cycle is broken. Those generational curses, those chains are broken. That I, Me and my family, my kids have been going to church since they were a week, week old, two weeks old. And everybody knows them. And, and it's just such a beautiful thing that God can take the guy I used to be and transform me into one that really believes in him and relies on him and loves him. And then my sons are going to have a different experience because of, of that. And I'm thankful for that. 
And I'm thankful for you guys, and I appreciate your time.